You ever heard the expression that communication is 80% nonverbal? Actual research suggests, and there's different contending theories, that it's somewhere between 70 and 93%. My guess is the three people I just spent time looking at were wondering, what on earth is he doing? And probably made them feel really uncomfortable in that moment. And we have the ability to do that even without words. And in fact, that even becomes heightened even the more and more and more you're actually in relationship with someone. So like two twins, it's often said, who walk really closely together in life can feel certain things, or a married couple that can finish each other's sentences after 20 years of marriage, or the closer you have as a friend, you can just read the smallest little bit of their body language and understand what it is that they mean, or what kind of mood that they're in, or what it is that they're feeling, or whether they're hangry, or whatever is going on, because you just know them that well. This whole idea of the majority of communication, even verbal communication, being nonverbal, was popularized by um, the social theorist Albert Morabian, um, a longtime professor who's now emeritized from the University of Southern California. And his actual theory goes like this um, his 73855 rule, which at the end of the day doesn't mean that there isn't meaning in our words. He actually quickly clarifies this and says that this has to do with communication when it is embedded most fully with feelings and attitudes. So something that isn't just information, but rather communication between two people who exist in a relationship. And this whole idea got me wondering about the amount of communication, right? We've been talking all semester about hearing God's voice, about being in communication with him, about being able to relate to him, hearing his guidance, sensing it in our lives. But I think the reality is for so many of us that a lot of God's communication with us is in many ways, nonverbal. I mean, yes, Scripture, right, in terms of how we read it, but our day-to-day interaction through the presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives, I think for a lot of us, often is nonverbal. How many people here, by show of hands, have never heard the audible voice of God speak to them? Okay, well, you're in great company because there's a lot of great biblical figures, actually, who never heard the audible voice of God. I can't recall a single time in my life. I know God is walking with me. I know that God is near me. I have felt and sensed his presence and his leading in so many ways in my life through the voice of others, through a scripture passage that I'm reading that comes alive in an incredible and powerful and evocative um, way. But I have to admit, I've never actually heard God speak out loud to me at any one moment in my life. And so if you've never experienced that, but you're longing for more of God's communication and his voice in your life, my friends, you're in good company. You ever walked into a room or a place or a setting in life and something inside of you just told you that there was a darkness, that there was something off about it, that you needed to get out of there or you needed to at least be on spiritual, keen awareness of what was taking place. See, sometimes God warms our hearts or orients our lives towards something early in the process so that when a fork in the road comes of a decision we have to make in life, we've already been predisposed to make the decision that God's leading us towards. Sometimes God opens doors of opportunity and sometimes God closes doors. I can think of so many different times where something outside of myself has been decided by somebody else that closed a door of opportunity only for me to realize sometime later that I was actually saved from 
going down something that wouldn't have been of God at the end of the day. And I've been wrestling kind of the last little while in preparation for this marriage, thinking, this marriage, this message, (laughs) where in the world did that come from? Oh, my wife, Nikki, good morning. This message of like, what are the inklings and the stirrings and the sensings? Have you ever had it where like you felt God was leading you to do something, but you really couldn't even describe why? Like it was almost like a gut feeling. I've talked to some of you before who said, I came to Dort because I came on a visit and it just felt right. What does that mean? What is God doing in the feeling and the sensing and in his nonverbal communication in all of us? I just want to give you an example of some different passages from Scripture where this is evident, how God moves and directs people's lives and intercedes in different moments um, and interjects his will even when somebody's going one way and redirects it another. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. It's, it's just an exemplary list of several different passages in Scripture I thought of. So let's go to the first one. It's from 1 Kings. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. This is Obadiah speaking to um, Elijah after he's being pursued um, for his life and trying to figure out where he's going to go, um, where God is going to carry. Next, four, next verse. So this has to do with right after Jesus' baptism, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. How does the Spirit send? How did it do that with Jesus in that moment? Next one. So coming back now from his time in temptation in the wilderness, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Okay, next one. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it at that time. You will be given what to say. So you won't be spoken to, but you'll be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Next. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. This is a, the story that precedes the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch and the transmission of the gospel for the first time into northern Africa. So a significant moment in global history. But what did it mean when the Spirit told Philip? How did he tell him? Did he nudge him? Did he give him an inkling? Did he say it out loud? Next one. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them. He set people apart. How? It doesn't say how that actually happened. It just said that they knew that they were supposed to do it. So what is God saying, and how is he saying it in these passages? Next one. It seemed, I love this one. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. So this is right when they're trying to figure out what all the Gentiles are supposed to do in terms of adapting the Jewish customs, and then the Jerusalem council gathers together, and at the end of the day, this is their conclusion. It seemed good to the Spirit and to us. God's moving in this moment. God's doing something profound and significant. But what does it mean that it seemed good in this moment? Next one. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. How did the Holy Spirit keep this from happening? You ever wonder that? Like, did you just stand there at the door? 
mean like you go no further than this? Was it a deep sense that they both kind of had at the same time? Was it a consensus in the room where everybody felt like the spirit inside of us is all finding a resonance in this moment and therefore this must be of God? Next one. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. God is speaking and moving and directing the pages of history in these moments in profound ways, but that still seems kind of mysterious, doesn't it? It also seems very nonverbal. Next one. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Compelled by the Spirit. You ever been compelled by the Spirit? And how would you know if you were? Again, next one. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. His, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. God has revealed to us. How? Again. Next. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. There's a lot going on in that passage, and yet nobody seems to be overtly speaking. Next one. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So this is obviously some deep, intimate connection to have your life and the directions and choices that you have being led by the Holy Spirit, but nobody's coming to you and saying, thus saith the Lord, in order to make this happen. One more. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. There are so many different things that we feel before we ever have the ability to articulate them with words, and a lot of times it's in those spaces that God is moving and changing and directing, and yet so often we hear people say things, I just wish God would make it obvious. I wish God would tell me. I wish it would just be like out loud, or this is my favorite one, I wish God would just write it on the wall. I heard somebody say that yesterday. I wish God would just write it on the wall what I'm supposed to do. You do realize that in the Bible, the one time God wrote something on the wall, it actually wasn't a very good outcome. Right? I'm not sure this is actually something we should be longing for. Remember Balthazar, Daniel chapter 5, son of Nebuchadnezzar, many, many Tekel Parsons is written by this hand on the wall. It's the one time in the Bible there was writing on the wall. That guy died that day. So maybe it's just fine if we're not getting these big, overt, loud, audible voices, because often, actually, when that happens in Bible, something bad's about to happen. And more often than not, most of God's people don't hear that, but instead, we have a Spirit of God within us that's nudging us. And the closer that we grow in relationship with Him, the more easy it becomes to discern that that's actually the voice of God and not just a bad burger we had for lunch. But you need to be able to tell the difference between that, and how is it that you do that? Well, here's something really important I think we all need to understand, and that is that God deeply desires to speak into your life and into mine, to direct us in the way that we ought to go, but that will always come out of the depth of your relationship and not the volume of his voice. 
Just like the closer you are with someone, the more in tune you are with it is even just the subtlest of body languages or movements. The closer you walk with the Lord, the more obvious it becomes what his steps and directions and desires and impulses for you are. And that feeling and sensing within us, the nonverbal communication of God begins to become often for many of us the primary way at which our lives are directed and our choices become made. Now, let's go back to this list, God's nonverbal communication. These are all from the passages that I read off to you. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. It's simply an exemplary one. Being carried, sent, led, being given what to say, being told, said, something that seems good, having been kept, compelled, things God revealed, words taught, led, or even the Spirit interceding on our behalf for us, where the presence of God within us is leading us into the presence of God all around us, and the two are finding a congruence. And I think in the greater scheme of things, that's actually what all of us are looking for in our life, right? That I wouldn't have to just simply wait or go to somebody else indirectly for a message, but I would rather have this presence, the Spirit of God who is already within me, that I'm learning to walk in tune with, that I walk so closely with, that his little nudges become the things that direct the choices in my life. And the good news is, is that so often, I think for when we read the biblical story, that this is how God moves. So the call is upon each of us to try to figure out what does that mean within our lives and how do we do that? Earlier in the series, Sam did a great job talking about if you want to hear from God, different things we need to be able to do. You got a sensing of something? Well, test it. Where do you test it? First and foremost, against Scripture. God's never going to, the Spirit's never going to ask you or lead you or direct you somewhere where the Bible has not um, already spoken about or said or created parameters for. That's just simply not going to happen. God cannot contradict himself. And the Spirit cannot contradict the Father or the Son. Jesus was very clear about this in the farewell discourse, and he told us, the Spirit will never tell you anything that is against my will or the Father. So there's a congruence, and there's an alignment there between all three persons of the Trinity, whether God's speaking in the Old Testament, whether he's proclaiming um, healing and the parables and his teaching through the person of Jesus in the Gospels, or whether it's the Spirit who's walking with us now. So there's our first resource above all, we also talked about how the fact that you can kind of bounce ideas off of others, right? And asking people and discerning among a, a community of believers. One of the reasons we're given the church is so that each one of us individually would be stronger. You are not meant to walk in this world alone. You cannot have a fully robust spiritual life without being part of a community of believers. Because God's voice and direction in your life does not simply come in an individual channel from heaven alone. As much as the Spirit is alive in your life, God needs you to have people around you, and you will always make better decisions, and you will always find better alignment with the truth of God when you are walking with fellow believers in this world. But what I want to do with you today, just as we close, is to think about one other layer of application that you can put when you're feeling and sensing things or seeking God's direction in your life in a very nonverbal way. And this comes, of course, directly from Scripture. And not only that, but in the ways that Jesus taught us how to pray. And in a minute, I want to get into the Lord's Prayer with you and a couple key lines within that. But first, as I was reading through passages on, um, or different commentaries on the Lord's Prayer, 
This line beforehand in the intro stuck out to me from Michael Green. He says this, Prayer is not informing God of something he does not already know, nor is prayer seeking to get God to change his mind. It is the adoring submission of the creature to the creator, of the disciple to the master. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this sort of at a little more of an abstract level, right? But there's nothing you could ever tell God in prayer that he doesn't already know. And so it begs the question, why is it that God instructs us to pray? Why are we supposed to spend so much time in prayer? And what Jesus is offering, right, when he offers the Lord's Prayer and teaches his disciples how to pray, which is ironic, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's what he taught us to pray, um, is right before this, he's railing against the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who really believed in the first century that if you just prattled on long enough, you could bend the ear of God. Like if you could just tire God out because you prayed so long and so loudly, he would have to listen to you and then acquiesce to the things that you're asking for. But there is zero part of prayer that is actually that. And Jesus offers the corrective in the Lord's Prayer with a succinct, simple prayer. Because at the end of the day, the reason why you and I bow our heads and fold our hands is not that we would change God, but that he would change us. And so the posture of our hearts every time we bow our heads really is to enter into a time and a space of our hearts being realigned with God's will. It's a time of entering in in humility, which is why when Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, it starts with three declarations of adoration, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like, this is where you are. You are not even of this world. You are in heaven. You are not my Father. You are our Father. You belong to something and are part of something so much bigger than just me. And at the end of the day, what we're seeking is your ideas and not my own. Prayer is about him changing us and not us changing him. And so as I think about this at Christmas time, I thought about not just my prayers, but my wishes and my wills and my desires, maybe even my Christmas list. I try to take this principle and I apply this even to the Christmas list that I had written. How many of these things, the things that I'm longing for in this world, are actually more about things that I think will make me happy than things that God would want for me in my life? to make me more fulfilled. So after the three adorations are put forth at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, then and then only does it turn to three asks. Let's go to the passage. In Matthew 6, 9 and 10, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom so what it is that we're asking for in the very first thing in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus is teaching us, he talked all about the kingdom throughout his earthly ministry. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? It's God's rule and his reign according to his desire and his will of how everything is supposed to be ordered. That's what the kingdom of God is. And Jesus says it's now and it's not yet. When I come, this is happening all around us. The will of God is breaking and the future is collapsing into the present. Heaven is entering into this space. 
And even in the book of Revelation, when Jesus' voice thunders from the throne, it says, behold, I am, in the present tense, I am making all things new. No, it's not done yet. No, this, we're still living on this side of glory. Yes, we're still going to f- endure suffering and struggles and so many different afflictions all around us. But this is the prayer. God, I know I'm living at the intersection of these things, but what I want to do is if my place is between the now and the not yet, what I want you to do with my life is to teach me to lean a little more forward so I'm leaning more into the kingdom and the will that is yours and is of heaven so you would bring more of that into my life right now. I had a friend once upon a time, and every time I met him, he always said the same thing, and I never really understood it. Aaron, how the hell are you? Which is a really weird way to greet somebody if you actually break down the words. Interestingly, I have another friend. I actually had a conversation. I haven't talked to him in years, and I had a phone call with his son last night. And it reminded me of him. Because his dad always said, whenever I told him I'm going to preach, he said, give him heaven, Aaron. Give him heaven. Right? Here amongst our culture, if you're going to go into some sort of athletic competition or going to go into a boardroom for an interview, people would be like, give him hell. And I loved it the way that Kurt always said, Aaron, give him heaven. Which always made me pause and think of what it is that I was actually doing. Give him heaven. Take the future realities of which we're all going to be a part of one day and then talk about it and allow the church to have an imagination and a dream of what it would look like if we leaned all the way into that. You know that passage I read from Romans 8, 27, all creation groans? The actual wording here, the wording in Greek is apokaradokia, eager expectation. And literally, this comes from a a word that talks about straining one's neck forward in order to see into the future. The creation is straining forward, longing to be restored to the way God wanted it to be, longing for more of the kingdom to come in now, longing for more of heaven to collapse into the presence who can stop suffering and struggling under the weight of sin in this current age and experience the blessing and reality of what God intended for all of us to be able to live and experience. But to take one's neck and to lean it forward is also to take one's neck and stick it out which is a place of vulnerability and even an expression we use in English, isn't it? To stick out your neck. To place yourself in a place of vulnerability because you exist in this present reality, but your life and your calling and the way Jesus even taught you how to pray was to look forward to something and make it lean forward in. So I took my Christmas list and I put it against this litmus test are the things that I'm wanting and desiring now about your kingdom and about your will and the desires of my life. And I'm beginning to realize that some of the biggest things that I want for my life or the biggest goals that I'm setting actually have nothing to do with the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. They have a lot to do with my will and my desires. Come, my will be done. But to submit that and allow that to be broken in this season as I look forward to not just celebrating and remembering the birth of Christ, but anticipate his second coming, am I learning to orient all the things of my life around eternal realities and not just simply present ones? As we enter into and go deeper in our relationship with God, our call is to enter into his eternal values and eternal priorities, the coming of his kingdom, the extension of his will over each and every part of our lives. Come, 
So when I sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come with your kingdom, come with your will, come with your desires, come with your purification. And when I talk about the world around me longing, wars in Ukraine, in Palestine, all the hurts, what are we really longing for and asking for? That the values and priorities and the treasures of the kingdom of heaven, those who bear his image, would be put ahead of anything else on my Christmas list or yours. That's what we're really longing for. That's one of the invitations to orient your life during an Advent season back one more time around against the coming of our Emmanuel, God with us, to be with us even most fully in an eternal way, which is supposed to give us a lot of perspective in every part of our lives.